You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I highlight some of the odder instruments of rock. Forget about guitar, bass, and drums. Today's all about theremin, auto harp, and of course, more cowbell. Plus, we'll review the new albums from the British rockers Muse and punk pioneers Death. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to celebrate the weird instruments of rock. Greg, that, of course, is the introduction to Honky Tonk Woman by the Rolling Stones. I guess, in retrospect, cowbell is not all that weird. Whoever first had the idea of taking the bell off the bovine's neck (laughs) and bringing it into a recording studio... We wanted to single out that because, A, that wonderful joke on Saturday Night Live about more cowbell and Blue Oyster Cull having cowbell and everything. But, B, sometimes the oddest little instruments can make a great pop or rock song. Those ten notes played by producer Jimmy Miller yeah. on Honky Tonk Women make that entire song. You yeah. know, the cowbell continues and Charlie Watts comes in on the drums, but it's that little opening intro that that is the hook. And, you know, I used to do a column at Request Magazine underappreciated instruments of rock where I would wax rhapsodic about something like Cowbell or the maracas that Jerome played on the great Bo Diddley singles. So we thought we'd do a whole show on this and really have some fun about instruments that just shouldn't belong in rock and roll with bass, guitar, and drums much less samplers and synthesizers, uh, turntables, but do and make the entire song. And I'm going to start with the most famous weird left field instrument of all time, I think, the theremin. The theremin, of course, was the the prototype for really all analog synthesizers invented by an eccentric Russian scientist, Leon Theremin, <laughs> in the 1920s. There is a great movie by Stephen Martin called Theremin because Leon was a spy and a super genius in addition to being an inventor. The theremin is played with your hands. There, There is no keyboard. There are no notes, really. One hand controls the volume. The other controls the pitch. And you wave your hands in front of these two antennae, and it makes these unbelievably odd sounds. Uh, a young fellow from upstate New York, your old neck of the woods, mm-hmm. Robert Moog, started out by building these in, in his bedroom when he was a kid, went on to form the first real musical synthesizer, the Moog synthesizer. But, you know, the theremin made a big impact in the 50s on the soundtrack to all sorts of sci-fi movies. It was always the sound of the UFO swooping in. And then it became a little more musical in a rock setting. The most famous is Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. Of course, Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin. I want to play a modern 
mistress of the theremin. Yvonne Lambert is a member of the Texas band Octopus Project. And it started as it does with many indie rock bands who use theremin as just a noisemaker. Let's add some weird noise into this wonderful, swirling, psychedelic mood rock that we're making in the Octopus Project. But Yvonne really put her nose to the grindstone. I've <laughs> interviewed the band. She spent a lot of time mastering the theremin. If you've ever seen the movie Theremin, you know that there are virtuosos who can play wonderfully melodic music, sometimes multi-melodies at once just using this primitive synthesizer and their hands. And Yvonne has learned to play it in a very musical way. In fact, in the song I'm going to play from the new Octopus Project EP, Golden Beds, tune called Rural, uh, there are no vocals, and really the theremin is taking the place of what would be a woman singing. It's it's a, a kind of slow, really creepy, atmospheric track, but it really showcases the theremin well. Here it is on Sound Opinions. That is Rural by the Texas band The Octopus Project on Sound Opinions. We are celebrating the weird or underappreciated instruments of rock and roll. Mr. Cott, what do you have for us? Jim, digging deep to uh, celebrate the theremin, I want to pay homage to, I think, one of the great weird instrument players in all-time rock and roll, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. Mm. Normally noted as being kind of the blues aficionado in the Stones when they got started. He was the hardcore, the bluesiest of the bluesmen in the Stones in a lot of ways, and and it kind of set the template for their early sound. But in the mid-60s, the Stones had this experimental era with Jones at the forefront where they ventured far beyond R&B and blues to uh, become more of a pop band. And a lot of the colors and textures 
in those songs were set by whatever instrument Brian Jones happened to pick up that day and, and decide to play on. When you think about it, he was playing auto harp on songs like You Got the Silver, Oboe on Dandelion, Mellotron on She's a Rainbow, Accordion on Backstreet Girl, Dulcimer on I Am Waiting, Harpsichord on Lady Jane, Recorder on Ruby Tuesday, Sitar on Painted Black. Each one of those instruments, a non-traditional rock and roll instrument, setting the foundation for those songs. But the instrument that I'm going to celebrate that Jones also played is the marimba. This is a percussion instrument, a series of keys or bars that are struck with mallets to create individual musical tones that dates back centuries to Africa. And, and came over to the Western Hemisphere a few centuries later, adapted into Hispanic American music first, and then uh, started venturing up north where bands like the Stones started experimenting with it. I, mostly known in the jazz world, I think, uh, when, when you think about marimba. But Brian Jones picked one up one day, and the next thing you know, you've got the foundation for the song Under My Thumb, one of the Stones' biggest hits. But no, here, here's this guitar, bass, drums band, you know, Keith Richards' guitar, Mick Jagger's vocals, those are the signatures of that band, you think. But on Under My Thumb, it's Brian Jones' marimba. Here it is on Sound Opinions, Under My Thumb from the Rolling Stones. Under my thumb, the girl who once had me down. Under my thumb, the girl who once pushed me around. It's down to me. The difference in the clothes she wears down to me. The change has come. Under My Thumb by the Rolling Stones, featuring some great marimba playing by Brian Jones. I think that's a pretty common instrument there, Mr. Cod, the marimba. I'm going to give you one. Not in rock and roll. Well, I'm going to give you one that's a lot weirder, okay? In fact, I can think of no other rock song that uses the instrument I'm about to highlight. As you know, the Trogs, the great proto-punk band from Andover, England, contemporaries of the Beatles and Herman's Hermits and the British Invasion, but much nastier than all of them. You know, they're one of my favorite bands. I love this band. There'd be no garage rock without the Trogs. Wonderfully ham-fisted, but brilliant in everything they did. And their breakthrough hit with Wild Thing, 
written by a New York uh, singer-songwriter, Chip Taylor, but really immortalized by the Trogs and then later covered by Hendrix, in the middle of it for no reason whatsoever. I mean, here is a really primitive, uh, nasty guitar sound, a thumping drums, and the inimitable voice of Reg Presley, (laughs) right, who can't sing at all. And in the middle of it, they turn to this instrument, uh, which is from South America. Now, there's some debate about where the Oak Arena really came from. It's a small, oval, ceramic instrument that has between four and 12 holes, and depending which holes you cover up like a flute, while you blow into it, it makes different notes. There have been instruments like that found in China centuries ago, but it is thought that Cortez, of Cortez the Killer fame, brought it back from his encounters with the Aztecs in South America to Europe, and then a handful of classical composers in the 1970s century began incorporating it. Why the Trogs turned to an oak arena to do the solo in Wild Thing, I will never know. <laughs> Nobody will know. But it made this instrument famous. I will add only as a footnote that it has uh, revitalized sales of late because it was a big feature of the Legend of Zelda video game. <laughs> oak arena turning up in the weirdest places. Here it is on the Trogs classic single, Wild Thing, on Sound Opinions. Right, Mr. DeRigatis, uh, perhaps the only example of an ocarina being played on a rock song, and that was Wild Thing from the Trogs. I'm going to try to outdo you. I may not be able to, but I think I can find an instrument that is so rare in rock songs that the person who actually ended up using the sound of this instrument on a rock song had to invent his own version of it. Um, That's the didgeridoo. Ah, yes. An Australian wind instrument. I mean, this instrument goes back centuries to the tribes of Australia. It is a wind instrument. It was made out of the uh, 
innards of a eucalyptus tree originally and became famous for its drone qualities. I think every civilization sooner or later arrives at the drone as an essential part of their musical vocabulary. And in Australia, it was the didgeridoo that supplied that fascinating sound. If you go back to some of those uh, original field recordings from from Australia that have uh, documented this instrument. One of the uh, most inventive minds in modern music is Richard James, uh, otherwise known as the Aphex Twin. He heard that sound. He is a man fascinated not only with weird and oddball sounds, but in creating his own instruments. He was Mm -hmm. an engineering student in England, and he was uh, able to build basically his own keyboards and synthesizers and percussion instruments and and create an entire sound world out of them. Uh, Became one of the most celebrated DJs in the UK rave scene in the early 90s, primarily not only for his uh, heavy dance beats, but for also becoming one of the progenitors of the ambient dance music movement in the early 90s. And at the core of that legacy is his song, Didgeridoo, was actually a top 100 single. Hard to believe now. You know, there weren't any eucalyptus trees handy uh, for him to make this instrument, but he loved that sound, and he was able to reproduce it by fashioning his own version of it out of drain pipes in the back of a club in Cornwall, England, where he used to DJ. And and the reason he said that he wanted to uh, create this sound and, and put some beats underneath it was that he needed something at for the end of the evening when the crowd was winding down, the ecstasy was wearing off, and to create a little chill-out music for that audience to go home by. So he used that didgeridoo sound, that haunting drone, as a model for this particular record. Didgeridoo from Richard James, a.k.a. the Aphex Twin, on Sound Opinions. That was Didgeridoo from the Aphex Twin, one of my weird instruments of rock. We're going to celebrate more weird instruments of rock coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, we're going to review the chart-topping new album from Muse and the reissue from Punk Pioneer's Death. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He is Greg Cott. And that is Pink Floyd with uh, Shine On, You Crazy Diamond. Greg, you know the story about uh, Pink Floyd and the weird instruments when they were making Wish You Were Here? Yeah. The pressure to match the unprecedented (laughs) success of Dark Side of the Moon really left them scratching their heads. What can we possibly do? They were stuck in the studio for six months. They had this idea to make an album called The Found Objects Album. They spent six months at Abbey Road just recording tuned wine glasses, you know, with Mm -hmm. different amounts of water in and running their finger over the rim, and different lengths of rubber band all the way from six inches to six feet. (laughs) I I asked David Gilmore once, I said, you know, why didn't we ever hear any of that? You heard a little bit of it, just a tiny bit of those uh, wine glasses on Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And Gilmore said, you know, after we spent six months playing with rubber bands, we figured (laughs) it'd be a lot easier to just use real instruments. (laughs) Thankfully, other musicians have not had that opinion. They have used very strange things for instruments indeed. I guess that there are singing saw virtuosos who would argue with me, and they would say, no, the singing saw is a real instrument. In fact, not just any saw can be used and bowed and made to sing. You have to buy a special musical singing saw. I don't know how much of that I buy, okay? But there are singing saw manufacturers, and there's been a bit of an indie rock, underground rock renaissance of the singing saw, in part because of the Elephant Six Collective and uh, Nutramilk Hotel, one of those guys who had played with Jeff Mangum and Nutramilk Hotel. Julian Costner just released a Christmas album last year, all played on Singing Saw. We're seeing a lot of alternative country bands from time to time bring in a little bit of Singing Saw. But in rock and roll, no one has used the Singing Saw better than Mercury Rev. Deserter's Songs, their wonderful 1998 orchestral pop album, is lousy with Singing Saw. Mm -hmm. They had a dedicated member of the band at that point playing the Singing Saw. Again, you got about a six-foot-tall saw that looks like it could cut down a giant sequoia and it's it's bent at different ways and played with a violin bow or a cello bow and it makes this ungodly sound not unlike a theremin Mm -hmm. (laughs) here is a great song it starts with a real solo spotlight on the singing saw by mercury ref from deserter songs it's called endlessly on sound opinions
Endlessly from Deserters Songs on Sound Opinions, starring the singing saw. Greg, what weird or underappreciated instrument of rock do you have for us? Well, Jim, you mentioned uh, the singing saw, which, by the way, if I were to pick a single singing saw track that I treasure, it would be something from the Flatlanders' first album, where the ah. singing saw is uh, duetting, essentially, with Jimmy Dale Gilmore's <laughs> voice. It's, you've heard nothing like it, let me tell you. And it, it is associated somewhat with country music, so I'm going to stick in, the, in, in, that, in that realm when I talk about the auto harp. It is an instrument primarily associated with country music. If you've ever seen a picture of the Carter family, inevitably uh, someone in that picture, usually Maybelle Carter or Sarah Carter, will be holding an auto harp. So it was a big part of uh, the country music vocabulary, you know, in the 30s, 40s. An old-timey instrument that normally is not associated with rock in any way, shape, or form. A beautiful-sounding instrument. It is essentially 36, 37 strings that are played much like a zither, and it can create a beautiful rhythmic bed for a song, and there are also some solo virtuosos on this instrument as well. Cat power, otherwise known as Sean Marshall, used it as her sole accompaniment on a cover version of the doo-wop hit Sea of Love on her covers album in 2000. You know, Cat Power tends to be a singer who is associated with indie rock and, and a more conventional instrumentation. She is a quirky singer with a marvelous sense of musicality. And on this particular song, her voice is really showcased by the use of this instrument. Just the fact that it's a, a pretty much of a solo performance just with that auto harp. You can really hear the musical qualities of this instrument. And I think she was hearkening back to that Carter family sound, that beautiful sense of intimacy and loneliness and longing that the Carter family brought to its most beautiful ballads. Sea of Love as performed on an auto harp by Cat Power on Sound Opinions.
Auto Harp is played by Cat Power on her cover of Sea of Love. We are continuing our discussion about weird instruments of rock. Jim, what do you got next? Greg, my last pick is going to be the harmonium. You know, it's a freestanding keyboard instrument, similar to a reed organ, that uh, you have to pedal it as you play, mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of like a bicycle, to uh, push the air through these bellows. Some of them ha- have a hand bellow. Either way, the air is coming through the instrument, you're playing the keyboard, and it's wheezing and groaning like a uh, asthmatic accordion. <laughs> it's a wonderfully ugly instrument. I think the most famous proponent of it is Nico. After she split from the right. Velvet Underground, her entire solo career was basically her on stage singing in uh, in those mellow, perfect ovals and playing harmonium. But, you know, the Beatles used one. Uh, There there must have been one at Abbey Road. It's on Dr. Robert and the Inner Light and We Can Work It Out and Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. But I'm going to play, I think, the most uh, famous modern proponent of the harmonium, Beck. Now, when he recorded that wonderful, sad song, Nobody's Fault But My Own, for Mutations, uh, it was a grand piano and a cello that kind of made the combination. But when he's been playing it live for the last five or six years, It's usually him alone on stage with a harmonium. Classic vintage one. Who knows? Some junk store in L.A. must have had one. Mm -hmm. But uh, he plays it. He loves it. It's become a hallmark of his shows for any Beck fan. This is a live version of Nobody's Fault But My Own by Beck and his harmonium on Sound Opinions. (laughs) To give you like a rusty blade A doorway from an open lane Cut you loose from a chain gang And let you go on On the day you said it's true Some love holds and some get used Tried to tell you I never knew Could be so sick Who will ever notice you You fade into it's such a selfish way to lose The way you lose these wasted blues These wasted blues And tell me that it's nobody's fault 
Nobody's Fault But My Own from Beck, solo performance with the Harmonian. We're wrapping up our discussion of weird instruments of rock. We could go on forever because there are countless weird instruments of rock. That this we is could a fun document. show. I didn't even get to bring in my own personal uh, didgeridoo, <laughs> which I can't play, or the theremin that I gave my wife as a wedding present. Well, you know, the listeners are waiting with bated breath. I think the next time we do this show, we absolutely need to hear that. We'll do it live. Absolutely. Finishing up the discussion, Jim, I want to bring the bagpipes into the discussion because, uh, you know, people associate this with uh, Scottish marching bands, and obviously it's an instrument that's been around for centuries, uh, you know, not only in Europe, but Northern Africa, the Persian Gulf. I mean, various uh, continents and peoples have their own version of the bagpipe, and it has filtered into rock and roll over the years. Uh, there have been various examples of bagpipes used in rock songs. The Animals notably used a bagpipe on uh, Sky Pilot and Paul McCartney on Mull of Kintyre. There was uh, Big Country. Don't forget that guy from Corn, Jonathan Davis. He, play, <laughs> <laughs> he plays a bagpipe occasionally. Yeah, you know, the thing about bagpipe, though, I know some bagpipers, right? Yeah. It takes you a decade before you can call yourself an apprentice. <laughs> it's a hard <laughs> instrument to learn. It is an extremely, extremely difficult instrument. And the reason I'm playing this particular version of the song is that sometimes uh, ACDC, that great, great rock band from Australia, are kind of viewed as musical Philistines, you know? Mm-hmm. But Bon Scott, the second lead singer, singer in the band. I came on board in 1974. 
was a very smart man and a very well-versed in bagpipes. In fact, he used to play with something called the Fremantle Western Australia Scots Pipe Band as a youth. So bagpipes were part of his vocabulary before he came into this uh, hardest of all hard rock bands, as far as I'm concerned. Great vocalist and also a great bagpipe player. And by the way, Jack Black did not write the following song. He may have claimed it in School of Rock and did a great version of it, but the original version was ACDC doing It's a Long Way to the Top If You Want to Rock and Roll with a great Scottish bagpipe solo right in the middle on Sound Opinions. to the top if you want to rock and roll by ACDC with the bagpipe. Good call, Mr. Cott. If you'd like to make a comment on the air about weird instruments or anything we talk about on Sound Opinions, call our hotline at 888-859-1800. You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org or network with us on Facebook. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of the albums by Muse and Death.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He is Greg Todd, and that is the English band Muse with a song called Uprising from their new album, The Resistance. Greg, Muse is huge <laughs> in <laughs> Europe. Boy, oh boy, it, I don't think there was a single magazine cover that they weren't on in 2006 with their big breakthrough album, Black Holes and Revelation. Although this group has been kicking around since 1998. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was when they released their first EP. It's a trio. They're mixing progressive rock, glam, electronica, and of late, some Radiohead style experimentalism. The real star of the show is the guitarist vocalist Matthew Bellamy but he has a a bassist and a drummer behind him. And, you know, just a tremendous amount of hype. In the pop world, there often are these phenomenon which are purely English pop-driven, you know, and they come over here and we kind of scratch our heads from time to time. But Muse, with this new album, is doing really well in the U.S. as well. They've made appearances on big festivals like Coachella. It seems like it's finally spreading from the continent over here to the new world. We're going to give our opinions on The Resistance, the fifth studio album by Muse, in a second. But first, we want to set up a song here. This is called Unnatural Selection by Muse on Sound Opinions. That is Unnatural Selection from the new Muse album, The Resistance, their fifth studio album. Jim, as you mentioned, this band is huge. I mean, the last two albums have sold uh, a combined 5 million-plus copies worldwide, selling out back-to-back nights at Wembley Stadium in London. That's 70,000 tickets a night. That's pretty significant. That's U2 territory. Nobody but them. Not many bands that can do that. So 
As their drummer, Dominic Howard, recently told Spin Magazine, we're the biggest band America doesn't know anything about. Interesting observation. This album debuted at number three on the U.S. chart, so they may be starting to make a dent here. Clearly, the big push is on. What is it about this band that makes them unique? Well, I think, for one thing, there is an intense musicality about these guys. They are referencing everything from French opera and quoting Chopin to uh, doing a really good homage to Queen. I mean, uh, the lead singer is a pretty precocious dude. This guy. Uh, I don't know if homage is the right word. Well, Blatant rip off, rip maybe? off, yeah. But maybe rip off's a better word, Jim. But in any case, you can hear on a song like United States of Eurasia, where Matthew Bellamy is doing a pretty fair imitation not only of Freddie Mercury's vocal tics, but uh, Brian May's guitar style. They love that big, bombastic, floored approach. Musically, there's a lot of ambitious stuff going on in this record. It closes with this three-part suite, you know, they are... You know, exogenesis? Exogenesis Symphony Part 1, 2, and 3. And if you're just listening to the music, you can't help but be impressed by, you know, these guys have chops, they have ambition, they have some huge melodies, they are bombastic in the Queen tradition, but one thing that they lacked that Queen always had was a sense of humor, an yes. ability to, to not take themselves so seriously. I mean, Freddie Mercury in his tights, you know, you just couldn't take that guy seriously, <laughs> and he knew it. He was winking at you. Whereas Muse, I think, turns everything into this huge, self-important sound. If you pay close attention to the lyrics, and I advise you not to, this guy makes Bono look modest by comparison, and that, to me, is really the point where I have to part ways with this band. I have to give this record a trash it. There's a lot of people who are going to love it musically, but it is so bombastic and so self-important and so sanctimonious that I can't possibly listen to it. This is the sort of record that makes me proud to be an American, that we <laughs> ignore certain English hype. And Muse, really, we should not allow Homeland Security to let this band into the United States. I despise this record. The parts where he's not being self-important in the lyrics, he's pursuing this odd second-person plural psychosexual drama as if he's like a schizophrenic worried about uh, weird sex with himself. My God. But the worst thing is, wow. look, you know, it's true. Have you looked at the lyrics? Don't. You and I love Queen. And you, Muse, are no queen, okay? And to be appropriating left and right those queen ticks, but without the sense of humor and without the really enduring melodies, ah, oh man, it's just, I, I hate this record. I'm glad you trashed it. I'll trash it again. That's a double trash it for Muse. <laughs> <laughs> That is Rock and Roll Victim from a band called Death, a new album called Death for the Whole World to See, an album that is based on basically a demo tape that was recorded in the mid-70s for a major label. 
by three African-American siblings in an attempt to play an early version of punk rock. Here are three African-American guys in Detroit, the home of Motown, not playing Motown covers, not playing James Brown covers as they were expected to do, but playing a version of rock and roll that was later adopted by bands like the Bad Brains and Minor Threat and became pretty successful. But death broke up before that sound became popular, before they were able to reap any benefits. The record never came out. The record label could never get past the idea that these guys wanted to call themselves death and play a rock and roll record. But it finally resurfaced. More than 30 years later, copies of a single called Politicians in My Eyes started fetching hundreds of dollars on eBay, and the band was brought back out of obscurity. Two of the three original members are still alive. The the oldest brother, David, died in 2000. But the other two brothers, Bobby and Dennis Hackney, are still around. The band is now touring as a result of this latter-day release, 30-plus years after it was recorded. And it reveals a band very much ahead of its time. I'm going to play a track from the record, and then we're going to review it. But here's the song that brought death back to life, as it were. Politicians in my eyes from death on Sound Opinions. The number one big scam is when they get number famous Like a rich at the top because they want to be boss They don't care who they step on as long as they get along Politicians in my eyes They can get less about you, they can get less about me As long as they are put in the place that they want to be They're always wearing small smiles like they go with the top Politicians in my eyes Politicians in my eyes by death on sound opinions, as you said, Greg. The uh, the band is back. Two thirds of the original members are touring. Not only that, but the hip hop producer and rapper Most Def is talking about producing a film based on their life mm-hmm. story. We have not heard the last from Death. You said they were ahead of their time in many ways. They were in terms of inspiring bands like the Bad Brains that would come in their wake. On the other hand, I can very much picture a 1974 triple bill with Iggy and the Stooges, yeah. the MC5, and Death. It is that raw, 
garage rock sound. They are not doing Motown, but there is that mm. inescapable Detroit soul that permeates. You know, it wasn't just the black bands. It was the white bands. There, sure. It's there in the MC5. It's even there in the Stooges. There is a sense of groove that is very Detroit. There is a sense of ferocity, which is very industrial. It's wonderful proto-punk stuff, and the whole thing just zooms by in what? It's like 20 minutes, right? Yeah, it's a quick record, and uh, the one thing I loved about it, even though there are only seven songs here, they packed a lot of ambition into those seven songs. I mean, Politicians in My Eyes gives you a little bit of a sense of what was going on. Somewhat primitive musically, but at the same time, a lot of velocity, a lot of aggression here. Uh, they were taking out a lot of aggression on people because they're saying, you've got to be this, and they're saying, no, we want to be that. We want to be Detroit ourselves. attitude. Absolutely, and you can hear it. It comes across 30 years later. The lyrics, again, looking out at the world, they're clearly doing much more than just singing about boy-girl stuff. Very ambitious band that was basically the heart was cut out of it before they really got a chance to get going. I'm glad these guys got a second chance and, a, and, a, and an opportunity to finally get their music out into the world. This is definitely a buy-it record. Absolutely. I will second your buy-it for death, Mr. Cott. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have punk folk artist Ani DeFranco, one of the great songwriters of the last 20 years. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, except this show, our 202nd here on Chicago Public Radio, marks the farewell of Todd Bachman. He is moving on with his family to the Pacific Northwest. I can honestly say, he's been here since we came to Public Radio, we will never have a member of our team as tall as Todd <laughs> again, unless, of course, we put our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, on the rack and stretch him out, which should at least be a fun afternoon. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. messages. Hey guys, um, it's Devin. I'm from uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, and I just wanted to call to say how much I enjoyed uh, listening to your review of the new Basement Jacks album, Scars, on the last show. So rarely do I hear anything about electronica these days. It seems everyone's kind of forgotten about it. Um, one of the interesting things about the review is you guys didn't mention uh, the song Raindrop, which I, I think is the best song on the album. Ironically, it's also the only song on the album that doesn't have a guest star on it. Uh, instead, they decided to use uh, heavily auto-tuned vocals by uh, one of the members of the band. because Jason Jacks are one of the few bands that can really get away with using auto-tune and not come off as like cheap gimmick like a band like Black Eyed Peas or something. They make it really, they really sell it and make it their own. So I want to thank you guys for it and I thought it was a great show and I'll hear you guys next week. Thanks.
Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Barry calling from Philadelphia. I enjoy the show very much, but I don't always agree with you, and I really took issue with Jim's uh, comment that the Hollies were not worthy of being uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think of this year's nominees, uh, or those being considered for nomination, no one is more worthy than the Hollies are. It's not just a question of the fact that Graham Nash has already been inducted as a member of Crosby, Sills, and Nash. Uh, the Hollies had a great, unique vocal blend that consisted of lead singer Alan Clark, Nash, and lead guitarist Tony Hicks. Tony Hicks' 12-string sound, I think, was as probably as influential uh, on the likes of uh, Alex Chilton and Chris Bell, a big star, as the birds were. If everybody knew you the way I do, people wouldn't wear frowns the way they do, because everything is sunshine when you hold my hand. So I really think that in terms of influence on bands like the Posies, R.E.M., etc., the Hollies have had a great impact, and I think you really didn't do them justice, Jim. And I hope you'll reconsider your thoughts. Keep up the good work. I really enjoy the show. Hi, guys. My name is Joe, and I'm calling from Chicago. I wanted to comment on your criticisms of the Beatles rock band, and I feel you missed a major point, but I don't blame you for it because I've never actually heard it addressed anywhere. Now, as we're coming of age, we all have these wonderful memories to associate with these wonderful songs. In fact, one of music's biggest strengths is that no matter how iconic the artist or song may be, we can all personalize those things in a way that no one else possibly could. My favorite memory is driving down country roads, screaming, oh darling, at the top of my lungs with my then-girlfriend. Now, I hope that people will see past the Beatles and see past the rock band version and really delve into the music on their own. But I fear the songs are so powerful and so strong that you can't help to associate the song with what you were doing the first time you heard it. And I feel it truly is the downfall of rock bands. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.